I like that. I, I like to do that on deer stand, you know. Amen. <laughs> That's a good song. That gets your blood going. Well, good morning, church. Glad that you're here. Why don't you take your Bible? Okay, everybody grab their Bible. Guess where we're going to? Yeah, two more weeks in Jude. We may have to come back after my trip and look at it again. I'm telling you, I'm throwing away 85% of what I studied just so you guys can get home before the roast burns, okay? This is an incredible, incredible book in the Bible, okay? Let me tell you what we got. We, uh, we have one more very intense, challenging passage. Before we see Jude turn to a more positive, maybe at least a lot more practical idea on how to deal with apostasy. Remember what apostasy is. It's knowing just enough light that you pretend you got it, but you know all the while you don't and you don't want it, and you seek to lead others along your path. Maybe misery loves company or something like that, but apostates know they reject, they seek to lead others along their pathway. Okay, I mentioned to you last week that in this tough section, the storm section, Jude lays out to us uh, two struggles. He addresses two big challenges in apostasy. First of all was apathy or indifference. We talked about it last week. Apathy basically has the attitude, just leave me alone. I don't want to hear about that bad stuff. I want to live in my little world. I want to live in my little bubble. I want to live in peace. Unfortunately, you can't. Not today, not in this world. But those who are caught up in apathy, that's what they desire. The second challenge of apostasy is authority, and that's going to be our subject today. We're going to deal, I'm going to do the best I can, deal with you on the subject of authority. And my goodness, dear people, you'll hear me say, we live in an authority vacuum today. The biggest, uh, one of the biggest challenges we face today is this breakdown of authority in our land, in our nation. So I want to I deal with that. I'll mention some things about that, okay? Now let me, before we do, I want to address something. It was kind of neat for me last week. Uh, I talked to three different friends at three different times. And all of them had basically the same question. Here's, here's, here's what it went like. You know, Brother Tom, I know that we live in an age of rebellion. I know that we live in challenging times and Christians are facing great challenges of the faith. But here's the question. I understand we must stand, but how do we stand? How do we do this? How do we make us stand for truth and not be castigated as being mean, full of hate, homophobic? You know what my answer to them was? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay? You see, gang, the fact of the matter is, truth always warrants confrontation. Now, how we do it's important, and I'll talk about that in a second. And next week, we'll see how he helps us in this battle. He'll turn personal next week to help us. But the fact of the matter is, truth always warrants confrontation. Truth is always confrontational by its very nature. But people, by nature, like darkness rather than light. And so when you stand for light, dark is always going to react. 
I was talking to someone just this past week, and I said, you know, people don't like to be told they're sinners. But the fact of the matter is, that's the way it is. And gang, many have died for truth's confrontation. And when you stand for truth, even if you sugarcoat it, okay, if you stand for truth, you're going to be labeled. It's the nature of truth. But here's how, what I'll say to you. Number one, we must stand regardless. You hear me? We must stand. That doesn't mean we carry 22s and every time we're challenged, we pull it out and say, listen to me. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we must stand because God requires this of his people, even if death is the outcome. We've got to be straight. We've got to alert others to hell. We don't want to love people into hell. Truth always requires a straightforward, in love, but a straightforward response. The second thing I'll say is this. If death is the outcome, then heaven will be worth it. The affirmation of Christ will be enough, okay? Number three, and here's, if I can help you, maybe this can help you. If our truth must be spoken, and it must, then we must not be arrogant about it. We must not be prideful about it. We must share the truth in humility. Share, yes, but we must do our best to share with humility we may be accused of being prideful. We may be accused of being arrogant. That's kind of the nature of it. But dear people, we must work hard not to be. I'm going I'm to give you a verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, maybe this will help you a little bit, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Hello, America. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There you go. But now look at verse 11. Such were some of you. See? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, gang, listen, it's complicated because of the ideology of a lost world that stands in direct opposition to biblical truth. But as we take our stands, remember, such were us. That ought to strip away pride. Strip away arrogance. It is complicated today. And I'm not sure I have all the answers. All I know is that when I stand before God, I don't want to be called mean or arrogant or homophobic. That may come. But what I don't want to do, I'd rather be labeled here that way than stand before God. And God said, you didn't stand at all. But it is complicated. I want to read to you something that I, I printed off. Um, 
I don't know, if, this group probably has heard of Shirley MacLaine. Have anybody heard of Shirley MacLaine? And, okay, some of you may not. She's an actress, pretty well-known actress, uh, kind of out there actress, okay? Here's what she wrote. I, and listen to me. Here, here's, here's a good synopsis of where we are in our land today. The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been, where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only person you really dress is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. Now, beloved, listen, that's the prevailing view of your neighbors. That's the prevailing view of your family, okay? We can stay in our bubble in apathy and indifference, leave me alone. I just want to live my life. I just want to have my little world. You can do that, I guess. You can try to do that. I don't think it works. You can try that. But all the while, what you're doing is just letting people go to hell without the confrontation of truth and the gospel message. And I don't know if that helps you. I don't know that Rich was one of I don't know that I answered your question. I don't know that I have an answer. All I know is this you got to stand for truth. And we must not be arrogant because such were some of us, you see. But stand nonetheless. And if it means you being castigated, and if it means you being labeled, if it means you being ostracized, if it means you losing your life, so be it. Because there's another life coming. And in that life, It'll all be well, okay? So anyway, um, I felt like I needed to say that, okay? Now, last week I said to you that when authority breaks down, civilizations break down, both social and spiritual, okay? Um, in fact, when the spiritual breaks down, the civil's not far behind. Again, we're in a spiritual battle today. Not a new battle. Jude addressed it. And in our text today, we're going to see very, three very clear illustrations of rebellion and then we'll close real briefly with a consequence. Would you take your Bibles? Would you stand with me in honor of God's Word? Let's begin reading Jude, verse 11 through 16, okay? And by the way, there's an incredible amount of illustration, and I'm not even going to touch on them. I'm going to blow right by them because I don't have time. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay... They have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's our text this morning. Then he describes them. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved for them. It was about these men that Enoch and 
in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly, of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people. This is apostasy, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Father, difficult passages, difficult verses, extremely important, vitally important for today. And yet it was written thousands of years ago. Important then, if then, my, how important now. Guide us as we go through it in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, sit down if you would, please. Keep your Bible open and, and look with me at verse 11. Let's pray. I, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know if maybe it's the enemy. I don't know, but I'm feeling a little inside of me. You may not tell it, but inside of me I'm kind of bouncing. It's not because Arkansas won, you know, I, that's unusual too, but uh, let's just, let's take a moment. Would you pray with me? Rich, I, I need your prayer. Pray for me. Thank you. All right, let's, let's kind of focus on verse 11. That's going to be our heart. But notice how he starts. He says, woe to them. Now, he's going to give us three descriptions that characterize our world. But he, he begins with the word woe. And gang, listen, anytime you see the word woe in Scripture, especially Old Testament, you can say to yourself, this is a word or a term of judgment. But I want you to listen to me. It's more than just a pronouncement. When we see woe in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it is a pronouncement of judgment. But it's, it's more than that. That word woe points to a calamity or a culmination of pain and distress. And so when Jude writes woe, what he's doing is he's describing the experience, the pain, the distress of what comes upon a people, especially the, the apostates, the leaders, but those who they've encircled their wagons around, the pain and distress that comes when a people rebel against God and rebel against God's authority. Now let me pause a moment. Do you understand what I've said to you? We are people of God. We love God. I know that. And God is a God of love. Yes, he is. But God is a holy, righteous God. And when you read the Bible, what you find is that when the pronouncement of judgment is given, that the people of God suffer along with the unrighteous. Now, God will pluck them out at some point, carry them to heaven, amen, at some point. But don't miss this word. It's the culmination of what people experience, pain and distress. A 
Apostates are going to experience, and they're going to drag others along with it, and there'll be pain with it when God pronounces the judgment, okay? Now, the three illustrations that he gives to us in verse 11 are illustrations that, that, that pervert the truth of God, the perversions of God, okay? Before I give them to you, I, I want to share with you something I read the other day. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of Al Mohler, but Al Mohler is president of one of our leading seminaries. He's an incredible, brilliant man. He's a man given to apologetics, which means the defense of the gospel, okay? I mentioned to you last week, uh, I don't know that I named the name, but everybody else is naming the name. It's the Osteens down in Houston. And you knew what I was saying. You knew who I was talking about, okay? Well, it's been all over the airwaves. And uh, um, he, he addressed it in, in his blog. But he addressed it in a way that just gave me shivers, that really grabbed my attention. And basically, here's what he said, and get hold of this, because we have so much lying going on in pulpits. We have so much deception going on in our nation today, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that here, okay? And sometimes we begin to ask ourselves, well, how do we know if this is what Joel Olstein and his wife, if, if, are they preaching truth? Is this right or is it wrong? And then we turn the channel and we go to somebody else and they're preaching this prosperity thing too. And is that right? And then we turn over somewhere else and, 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 and somebody else is saying, you know, God wants you to be happy and God wants you to have money and God doesn't want you poor. And, and although 99% of the people in the Bible were poor, you know. And so there's this confusion, isn't that? Do you, do you find yourself struggling? Here's what he said. Listen to me. He said, when you listen to the preaching of the folks in the United States, if what they say in Texas can't be said verbatim in Iraq, then flags ought to be going up. There ought to be red lights flashing in your spirit. That's an amazing thing to say. Gang, if what I, and I realize there's personal things we share. I've been here a long time, and we, do, we get personal. I, he's not talking about that. What he's saying is that when you take the Bible, if you do take the Bible, if you don't take the Bible, that ought to be a flag, but if you take the Bible and you begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, man's a sinner, Christ is the only Savior, and when you weave into your message something, that you can't take and preach in Iraq, then there ought to be red lights flashing. The message for Texans ought to be the same mass message for our Kansans, ought to be the same message for Iranians and those who live in Iraq. Do you follow what he's saying? And I wholeheartedly agree. I'm telling you, Joel Olstein, I'll just say it, Joel Olstein, he can't take his message. He can't go to India or Africa with that message because they would stare at him thinking, what are you talking about? We can't even drink water. We can't take a shower, a home, and a car. That doesn't even resonate with us, you see. 
And gang, I'm telling you, I don't know that anybody ever said it as clear as him. Listen to the message. If you can't take it to Iraq, then you might ought to question whether it's relevant for Texas or Arkansas, you see. Now let's look at verse 11 for a few moments, okay? Three perversions. The first perversion he talks about is the way of Cain. This is a perversion of God's worship. Again, I want you to know, worship isn't singing. It's not hymns versus praise. I understand that, right? It's not whether it's guitar or, or piano. Worship is an experience that you have with God. And it's a serious matter to God. John, in chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must Worship him in spirit and in truth. Cain is given to us in Genesis chapter 4. Both Cain and his brother Abel brought an offering to the Lord. It's the first worship service we have recorded for us in Scripture. They knew they were to bring a blood offering. They knew that. Yet because of pride, Cain decided he wanted to come to God on his own terms, not God's terms. So he brought... Fruit from his labor, not the way of faith, obeying God, the way of works. And you can't come before God and worship God based upon your own works, based upon your own pride, based upon all the own merits and efforts of your own life, you see. The way of faith is coming on God's turn. God rejected him because his heart wasn't right. Notice he came to worship. Hmm? Apostates come to church. Apostates infiltrate. That's what Judas told us. They infiltrate the church. They'll even seek to have places of leadership when you read the book, you see. But God rejected it because his attitude was wrong. There's a lot we can say about this. Let me say this. True worship is crucial. False worship is blasphemy. And it causes God to reject and react against it. Again, when you come in here on Sundays, you better be sure you're worshiping. You come in here judging, critical, trying to gain advantage, trying to do your own thing, you better be very careful. You and I were created for worship. We weren't created to sing, praise God. We're not graded on our voice, our ability to play. God looks at the heart. Cain's heart was a way of, of pride. Religion without faith, religion without relationship, religion without righteousness, religion without a blood sacrifice, or maybe better, through a blood sacrifice, is a perversion of God's worship. Christ is the only sacrifice, and only his blood opens the way of worship. Let me give you a couple scriptures to support that. Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you for on the altar to make atonement for your soul. Blood. New Testament, Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. When you come to worship, you better come on God's terms. Through the blood. Through the gospel truth. Not all this Tommy rot that we're seeing in all of our churches today, not on your terms. Your people, it's not about you. 
It's not about your happiness. It's about him and his holiness. That's what King shows us. Number two, verse 11. They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. You see that? That's a perversion of God's word. Let me tell you about Balaam. Balaam we find in Numbers chapter 22. He's not a farmer like Cain. He's a prophet. But he's a prophet for profits. He gives himself to money. Okay, He can be hired with what money has to offer. Oh, how sad. This was written 2,000 years ago. Man, does it address today? My goodness. You know, it's like, Jude, do you live next door? Do you have U-verse? You know? He gives himself to money. He can be hired for what money has to offer. Sadly, how prevalent is that today? But I'm going to tell you what, what bugs me. We'll have a, we have 150 here. In Houston, Texas, there are going to be thousands flock to a stadium to hear lies. And I'll tell you what else bugs me. And what's sad to me is that there are many more godly, sacrificing, sweating, and dying leaders of the faith out there. But we never hear anything about them. All we hear about is the hirelings that seek to pad the pockets off the gullibility of baby Christians. And that's happening today. Balaam sold himself to the king of Midian and Moab. And because he could not curse Israel, he had them offer to the men of Israel sexual perversion. And he got his money. But dear people, in the end, he lost his soul. And the greed of riches of this world have damned many a soul. Do you know what Balaam said after he got his money? Do you know what he said after he got his worldly goodies, after the emotion and the enticement of the world lost its appeal? Here's what the Bible says. Balaam said, oh, that I might die the death of the righteous. But dear people, it, it does not work that way. It doesn't work that way. You can't ascribe to the devil's ways. You can't long for the devil's toys. You can't live in the devil's value system and die a righteous death. You can't do that. I've kind of tried to challenge you to decide what side you're on here. But so many want to walk that middle road. They just want to live in their little bubble. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven, and they don't have no com- have very they have. No commitment to Christ or his church. You can't, that, that, that's not Christianity. And that, that's, that's paramount of shaking a fist before God. And then he even shake a fist at you later. See, you, you can't marginalize Christianity. Man, you're with them or you're without them. That's, that's what the Bible says, see. And that's the burden pastors carry. How many in, the, in their church that they're supposed to be serving? How many are fakes? How many are pretenders? How do you tell a pretender? Because they're not contending, like he said to do, for the faith. They just kind of meander along. But in the end, they stand before God in judgment. In the end, it's going to be far worse than their meandering along in this life because they're lost. They're lost. Spend eternity separated from God. Oh, that I might die the death of a righteous man. It just 
doesn't work that way, dear people. Okay? Numbers 31 tells us that Balaam, the prophet for prophets, was killed by the sword. When he was killed by the sword, a plague came on the people. Righteous suffer when ungodly rules, you see. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I think there's a lot of exchanges going on today. Then the third example we have, look at verse 11. Woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain. For pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. And now notice the third one, perished in the rebellion of Korah. Well, where do we find Korah? Well, we find Korah in the Old Testament book of Numbers, okay? He's a priest. He, had a, he was a teacher. He was a leader. But he was not content to be what God desired him to be. So he rebelled against God's leader, Moses, who happened to be his cousin, okay? He wasn't content to be a leader who, to lead where God assigned him to lead, to submit to another that was assigned by God. It was a breakdown of authority. And I want to tell you, you read the newspapers, you look at our society today, what do you see? Breakdown after breakdown after breakdown of authority. I'm going to tell those of you that have kids, I'm going to tell our next group that has a little bit younger that will have kids, if there's one thing you do, you instill in your children the lines of authority. You don't let them step over that authority. I remember when our kids, kids are natural, have a rebellion. They, God makes them independent as they get older. It's a natural transition. They're getting ready for us to cut the apron strings, and some of us are ready to cut the apron strings quick, right? So they're going to test you. Well, I remember Jeff one time being... You know, just a teenage boy, he loved his mama, but I remember him, uh, you know, standing up against his mama. And, uh, man, I, it shocked me because he had never done that, you know. And so I grabbed him. Back then, I was taller than him. Not a lot. It didn't last long. But I grabbed him. I pulled him aside. I said, boy, I got in his face. I put a finger in his nose. I said, boy, don't you ever talk to your mama like that again you think I'm mad now you do that one more time you're going to see mama this house we don't do that you have to instill in them this authority and it's breaking down you see it in Ferguson, Missouri we see it all over our nation today the bad thing is we're seeing it in our churches today rebelling against the authority that God sets up and it's hurting our nation. The first example was a matter of pride. By the way, let me give you a verse. Old Testament says rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. Huh? Rebellion. Rebellion against authority as it is the sin, like the sin of witchcraft, the Bible says. Our first example was a matter of pride. The second example was a matter of profit. This rebellion against God is a matter of position. The problem with rebellion is that people are not content to be who they are. So they get caught up with what they want and what they feel they deserve. Because we're in an I, narcissistic, I, mentality, church, society today. And so they rebel against God. Korah set himself up against God. 
not Moses. Moses was just a mouthpiece. If you read the life of Moses, he had an anger problem. He shot from the hip. He got mad. He threw things, you know. He, he, was, just, he, was, just, he was just a mouthpiece. God set him aside for a while to lead the nation, and when he got old, God got him out of the way and got a younger guy. That's the way it works, you know. Young guys come up. They don't think they're ever going to get old, you know. And one day you look in the mirror and you say, well, that's great. You know, or that's sad. That's all Moses was. That's, that's all we are, gang. For a moment of time in God's scheme of things, we come. When we get too old to tie our, toe, tie our shoes, he gets us out of the way and gets somebody else. That's all Moses. He wasn't against Moses. He was rebelling against God. And it cost him and all of his family, his kids. You, you hear me? Cost his, the earth opened up and swallowed them. Cost his kids their life, you see. Everybody in life has to submit to authority. If you don't, you have chaos. You have riots. You have mass murders. I, I submit to authority. I got more bosses than you can shake a stick at. Listen, I, I know that while I'm your pastor sent here by God for a time and, and it'll be gone, I, I answer. I have a finance team that I answer to. I don't spend money without talking to them. We have a personnel committee. Man, we don't do anything in the personnel area. I don't do anything the, without their approval. We have a building and grounds. They, they, they look after the grounds. You've set them up in that area. We have deacons. Now, deacons are not decision makers, but they're the best spiritual counselors a pastor could ever have. When anything major comes up, I'm not going to do anything without calling our deacons together and asking their opinion and, and fleshing some of that stuff out. I have some other guys, accountability guys. See, what I'm saying is everybody has to live under authority. Chase, let me tell you, dude, you're a young buck, you think you can time, climb tall buildings in a single bound. You, ain't, you don't know squats. Everybody has to live under authority. And when you don't, you have chaos, you see. You have rioting. And what do we see in our nation? It's because of this, okay? I wrote down here, rebellion is against God's design for a civilization. It's against God's ways. And it always leads to destruction because ultimately it's always against the word of God. Take Bibles out of schools, what do you get? Take Bibles out of the military, what do you get? Take Bible out of governments, what do you get? Now some are taking Bible out of churches. What do you get? You know, <laughs> you probably know. I'll say it anyway. Do you know that across our nation today, there's going to be many, many pastors stand before their people and not even open up the Bible? They're not going to say, take your Bible, turn to Jude, or take your Bible and turn to Matthew, or take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah. They're going to get up and give some little homily about how to feel good so that you could go out and live your best life now. They're never going to talk about sin. 
They're never going to talk about righteousness. They're never going to talk about repentance. They're never going to talk about faith. They're never going to talk about the cross. They're never going to talk about a blood sacrifice. You take the Bibles out of the church, what do you get? You get thousands upon thousands of people who want to feel good about their life, and all the while they're being led by heretics that's leading them into apostasy. When the worship of God, when the word of God, and when the way of God is rebelled against, what do you get? Well, look at verse 14 and 15. We're passing by all those wonderful illustrations. Look at verse 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Now, I want you to notice how Jude writes this. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. I, I want you to notice there at the end of verse 14, Behold, the Lord is coming, future tense? No. It's written in past tense. And what you find in Scripture is that when something is so sure, so certain, that oftentimes the writers will write it in the past tense like it's already happened. Now, I'll tell you what Jude is saying before he shifts to the practical thing. He's saying this is so sure, this is so sudden, that it has come. Not coming in the future, but it's came. Okay? Now, let me close with the God judges unrighteousness and God is coming soon and so I leave with you this question are you ready are you when you look at your life and your walk with the Lord your lifestyle your value system your core values that you build your life around let me ask you a question. Have you been deceived by the apostates? Are you pretending? Or are you contending? Gang, this is about eternity. It's about eternity. Okay? I want us to pray together. Barbara's going to come, and, and maybe this morning you have a decision to make. Maybe... You may be thinking, you know, I, I need to get this straight. I need to get my life right. Everybody's going to look at me and they see me as an older person. And I don't want to be embarrassed and all that. Well, I'll tell you what I would think. I'd rather go to heaven knowing that I made my stand for Christ than not. I, I don't know where you're at. But let's pray.